Mindfulness Mode 487. In each of us, we're not just our whole. We're actually half made up of our actions, what we're proactively or independently choosing to put out into the world, and our reactions. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, today we're going to be talking about relationships and talking about relationships with somebody who's really into this, who's got a lot of experience. He's done a TED Talk, he has a new book, and he talks about his own experiences as well, which can be very helpful. Now, on another matter, are you having trouble sleeping? Is sleep an issue for you? Stay tuned to the very end of the episode because I have a free a free way that you can improve your sleep. So stay tuned for that and sit back, relax, and enjoy my friend Brian Falchuk today. So Brian, great to connect with you again. Are you in mindfulness mode today? I'm very much in mindfulness mode. I have to be. It's a good time to be that. Thanks for having me on again, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, it's my pleasure. It's great to have you here. Brian Falchuk is an executive coach, a public speaker. He's a C-level executive and the best-selling author of Do a Day and also the 50-75-100 solution. Brian spent the majority of his life obese and overcome by anxiety until he discovered the approach to change all that. And it's a concept called do a day. And uh, as you probably know, I interviewed Brian before on the show about do a day and his book. And and it's been wildly successful. It's been very inspirational to not only me, to, to thousands and thousands of people. Brian was able to break from his pattern to live a life of consistent, unending health and wellness. And he works to share what he's learned with others who are seeking happier, more complete existence. So, Brian, it's really great to have you here. You now have a new book. Yeah. I'm so excited about this new book. And tell me, how does mindfulness relate to the 50-75-100 solution? It's such a present, ironically, it's a present, but very front and center kind of concept in both of my books. 50-75-100 solution rests on this starting point of trying to understand the happiness that the other person seeks and actually understanding your own happiness as well. Because a lot of times we lose sight of that and we get in these fights or these uh, dysfunctional relationships where we're just going back and forth without even necessarily understanding why we are in the first place. So mindfulness actually allows us to come back to center and be present in the concept of what is it we actually want right here, right now? What is it we're trying to achieve? And then reflecting back on how our behaviors may be standing in the way of that, how the behaviors of the other may also be standing in the way and what we can do to move both of our behaviors to a different place. And then we have a better relationship. So if you're not present, if you're not mindful, it's very hard to actually be able to do that because you just get in that spinning mode where it's, you know, tit for tat and kind of catastrophizing and holding on to the past kind of pain you've caused each other rather than just saying, hang on, what is it we both want and how can we actually help each other get there instead of standing in the way? Yeah. And I think we probably have all been there at one time or another. I really enjoyed your TED talk. Thank you. Where you talked about this and you just have such a great way of communicating 
with the audience, with the listener. And it just, it just seems so genuine. And you're explaining the 50, 75, 100 so clearly. Can you explain it to us now? Yeah. What are all these numbers? Um, I always hear from people like, <laughs> oh, I don't like math. I don't want to hear about, about it. So essentially the numbers are about pieces of the whole relationship. And I actually see relationships in four quarters. So 50 is two of those quarters, 75 is three and hundred is the whole. Well, the 50 is the easiest one for pretty much anyone to understand. And it's the idea that in any two-sided relationship, whether it's two individuals or two groups or an individual versus a group, there's two sides to the story. There's my piece and your piece. We are a bad example because we get along really well, but let's pretend we didn't, right? So we all own our half. That's a pretty universally accepted piece. Now, some people may say, well, you know, I'm not choosing for them to treat me this way, so I don't have a choice but to respond in kind. Maybe, maybe not. Don't have a choice is an awfully strong way of looking at it in a particular way. But the reality is you still accept what's going on in your body, in your mind, coming out of your mouth. You have to own that. Whether it's easy or hard, that's you. And the same for the other person. So that's where we see the 50-50, the two halves. But what I found through my own struggles in relationships and the journey I went on in studying some aspects of Buddhism that sort of enlightened me to what this is all about, and and I share those concepts in the book, is it's not two halves, it's four quarters. And the quarters are actually mirror images. The two halves of me, which are two of the quarters, and the two halves of you, they're mirrors of each other. So in each of us, we're not just our whole. We're actually half made up of our actions, what we're proactively or independently choosing to put out into the world, and our reactions. So how we respond to what we're taking in from the world. And the same dynamic goes on in the other person. Half of them is their you know, free will-driven choices and their actions. And the other half is how they are reacting to what we're doing, because we're the influence on them. And when you see it like that, when you, you know, if you own your half, remembering that half of them is in response to you, suddenly you go from feeling like, well, I don't have control. I don't have power. I don't have agency or influence over this relationship problem because they're doing this to me. Suddenly you say, well, hang on a second. Half of them is in response to me. That actually means I have maybe not control, but certainly influence over half of them, which means I have my half plus a quarter of the whole, the piece that's in them as a reaction. So I actually can control influence, move three quarters of this relationship to a better place. And if you can do that to three quarters of the whole, it's not hard to see how you can move the whole to a better place. And that's where the 100 comes in. So it's our half, our influence over half of the other person to be able to move that whole to a better place. And that's what the numbers are about. And I realize from a marketing standpoint, that's not the best title for a book. You know, marketing gurus are like, you should have called it relationship stink or something like that. And I said, well, I don't, I don't resonate with that title. It doesn't seem very kind to me, but it's, it's really as simple as this. It's, it's that relationship we all have to what we're putting out there and receiving from the world and our ability to see our influence and our power where we may have felt none before, which is actually a big driver of that problem, that feeling like you can't do anything about it. Brian, when did you first start studying Buddhism and what moved you to that? I should know the date a lot better, Bruce. It was probably in 2000 and really late 2017 because Do A Day was already out. And uh, I was moved to look into it through my own relationship struggles. My wife and I were having a particularly tough time. 
it sort of indirectly flows out of the experience I talk about in Do A Day around her illness and these roles we had sort of slotted into and the norms that set up for our relationship and the way we started to relate to each other. Um, and worse yet, I think it's more about the ways we stopped relating to each other. So mm -hmm. that lack of connection because we had gotten into this sort of survival mode. I took a job in Atlanta. From, I'm from Boston. This is when you and I connected um, beyond the show right. or actually in the show too. I think I did it from my office in Atlanta. Right. So I was gone five days a week. I would commute down to Atlanta early Monday mornings. I'd get in late Friday nights and I would be in sort of doing mode for the few days, you know, those two days I was home. So we really weren't connecting. I was burnt out. Obviously, you're more likely to be agitated in any of those states. And so our negative dynamics were thriving and not the positive reconnected ones. And things really came to a head. I was simultaneously seeing a therapist to talk about this. And my intention in that was my wife's doing all these things to me. She's being so bad to me. I just need new coping mechanisms. Um, you know, I was sort of constantly reminding myself to do a day and, and not maybe not seeing my own hand in making it better. Mm -hmm. And so this, this therapist very kindly wasn't like, no, it's you. Although that's what my wife was saying, that it's not her, it's me. And of course, I'm saying, no, it's not me, it's her. The therapist just sort of guided me down a path of exploration because she knew I'm a very inquisitive and introspective person. So she suggested this book. I read it. It's called Open Heart, Clear Mind by this Buddhist monk, Thubten Chodron. And I started to see these principles in, in the Buddhist lessons that really spoke to me. And so I said, you know, things are really bad with my wife. What do I have to lose by trying to apply these ideas? Might as well, right? What's the worst that could happen is we're going to get divorced. Well, that's kind of the way things are headed anyway. Mm. So I tried. And in applying these ideas, it starts with really seeing the happiness that she's looking for, which is not just about making me miserable. As much as it feels that way, there's something she actually wants for herself. And when you feel that way about it, you feel less attacked. Because she didn't come to this interaction to hurt me. She came to it wanting something better for herself. And maybe I'm just in the way, or she perceives me to be in the way. And so she's going to respond a certain way. And of course, so am I. And so then she's reacting to how I'm responding. And then, then that vicious cycle set off. So what if I could reflect differently? What if I could try to get in touch with that piece and appeal to that? That might change the dynamic. And so in one of our worst fights, I was in the heat of the moment and decided instead of yelling, I'm going to try it. And so I tried to appeal to this idea of happiness and really not necessarily knowing what the happiness was, but at least focusing on the fact that there is some form of happiness she seeks and it's not just my hurt. And that allowed me to step back. And so instead of lashing out back to her or what I always say is my, my response is generally to explain to her while she, why she's wrong, which is not a, a, great, a great tactic. I just said, you know, I love you. This is not what either of us wants. I'm sorry we're both hurting. I love you. I'm going to go to bed. And hopefully we can talk when things are calmer between us. I love you. So I said it like two, three times at least. And I walked away. And you notice my apology wasn't, I'm sorry you're feeling this way, or I'm sorry, um, I, you know, I'm sorry that you misunderstand, or these sort of fake apologies we throw out. Right, right. Uh, I'm sorry you don't understand why this is a good thing. Like, no, it's, you're not mm -hmm. really apologizing. So I just said, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry we're feeling this way, or I'm sorry we can't be happier right now. And as I'm walking away, she throws some kind of, you know, 
unkind comment my way, which is usually the way this works. And normally I'd like, you know, come bounding back in and yell back or try to explain to her why she's wrong or tell her she's nasty or what, you know, past judgment. And instead, I just kind of repeated the same message. I love you. I'm sorry that this is going this way. It's not what either of us wants. I'm going to go to bed. I love you. And I left it at that. And I walked away and she did it again. And I just kept walking. And this repeated for about two weeks. So in every one of the, you know, things were really heated. In every interchange, I just kept calm. I tried to focus on what happiness she might seek. And I started to get glimpses of it. And so then I tried to appeal to that and I tried to sit with that. And so when I hear her hurting about not having it, that's where I focused. So it must be really hard to want this and not have it. It must be really hard to feel alone right now. It must be really hard to whatever. Just kind of validate how she's feeling about not being connected to her happiness. And with every one of these interactions, things stepped down further and further to the point that we got out of this stuck situation. And that allowed us to start moving forward. Now, it's not to say things have been perfect at all, but it's also not to say we get divorced because we haven't. And generally, we are in a significantly better place with a path forward together, with more happiness, with more understanding. I mean, we had a, a situation just a few weeks after that night where she had... Uh, I, was, I was like going out the door and I had... I had an appointment or something. I was leaving a little bit early because I want to stop at the store and pick something up, which I had told her a couple of times. And she asked me, why are you leaving so early? And I'm hearing it with this kind of, you know, tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is like, she hadn't slept the night before and she genuinely just forgot. And so she was just asking, but to me, it's, I don't trust you. Where are you going? Why are you doing this? You're not telling me where you're being sneaky. And so I'm feeling mm-hmm. judged and accused and unsafe. And I reacted to that. And I went off, you know, I've told you multiple times, you think I'm up to something. I don't, I don't need that. I've done all these things. And then I stopped myself and I said, wow, right now I'm reacting to our past. I'm not reacting to what is likely just you being tired and curious and maybe forgetting that I told you. I am so sorry for that. That's not what you deserve. And that's not what you wanted. And she looked at me and normally our historical pattern, even if I apologize like that, would have been for her to scream at me. And she came mm-hmm. over and gave me a hug. And that's when the light bulb went off. It's like, ah, it's working. Like that is a materially different way that our relationship is playing out. It's working. And so I've continued on that. And it's not just in our marriage. I've used it at work. I've used it with friends. I've used it, you know, I, I talk about this uh, particular thing in the, the TED Talk, getting cut off in traffic, right. which is like, it's an everyday thing. We all fit. We have relationships everywhere, Bruce. And they're uh, quite often, they have ways they could be better, even the good ones. And that's mm-hmm. when I started to realize the power of this is not just about saving a marriage. This is actually pervasive in all parts of our life. And it's keeping us from our happiness because we have these pockets where our relationships are taken away from us because they carry a negativity. Our relationships maybe aren't negative, but aren't adding to where we're trying to be in life. And they're not mm-hmm. fulfilling us. What if that could be different? And so that's what sparked this idea in my head that like, there's more to this. I started to write about it. You know, I was writing for Inc. Magazine at the time. So I started writing an article. And I'm at like, I don't know how many thousands of words. They only want like 800 to 1,000 words. I'm like, this isn't going to work. I can't cut this down. So I was like, a, a book is, is definitely necessary at this point. And that's when the idea for the book was born. Now, has your wife embraced Buddhism at all? No, she's very firmly a Catholic. 
And so, you know, to her, the idea of subscribing to Buddhism is a challenge of her faith. And, and to me, I'm not Buddhist. It's not, it's not just a religion. It's also a philosophy and you don't have to, I mean, so Chodron puts it really nicely in the book. She, she says, it's like a buffet. You can come and take what you want. And if right now you're not interested in these other things, then don't take them. You can always come back later and get more or get something else. So I don't need to believe that Buddha is God or, you know, however you want to interpret that to believe that these are beautiful principles that can help me live a better life. So I've embraced that. Now I see her embracing the concepts, but through different paths. So there's a lot of similarity across Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and, and a few other religions around the idea of love and respect for you know those around us and love for others. So she does, um, I would say she embraces the concepts without necessarily ascribing them to Buddhism. And what religion do you personally prescribe yeah. to yourself? Yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm not, I'm not like a highly devout Jew. Obviously, I'm married to a Catholic, so that probably would, would tell you I'm not a devout Jew, but I was born and raised Jewish, and that's what I identify with. Um, I don't, you know, there's nothing in these concepts that are out of sync with my religion. So I'm right. I always thought that about Buddhism, that it could really, it could really dovetail with any religion. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there are aspects of it that I think are harder for some people to to sit comfortably with, like reincarnation. Um, you know, that certainly doesn't fit with uh, the Judeo-Christian or Muslim norms, but that's okay. You don't have to believe in reincarnation to believe that ending suffering for others is a good thing, or seeing the happiness that we all seek is a good thing, including your own. We're seeing how we're all interdependent, which is one of the, the key principles that no one is a certain way in and of it themselves. We are these ways in relation to each other in different situations. So you have someone who's good in one situation and quote unquote bad in another. That's why, you know, we can love someone and fight with them. Like how many my siblings and I, like my sister and I, we were a year and a half apart. We grew up fighting like cats and dogs. And, you know, I also feel incredibly close to her. And when we see each other, she lives across the country. When we see each other, you know, there's such a warm embrace. So how is that possible? This is a person I'm fighting with. How do I also love her? Well, of course, right. this is the idea is we're different ways in different situations, which is actually the mechanism for that happiness seeking to start to move the relationship. Because if you can use the happiness idea to change something about the situation, you get a different version of that person. Uh, and the, the third principle I think is beautiful. It's just simple. It's impermanence. Nothing is the same forever. Like everything changes, you know, the old adage, the only constant is change was true. And to me, that's very hopeful. It gives us hope that this work, these ideas, putting them in, even in such tough situations is worth it because everything changes. It doesn't mean they're always going to be mean to you forever. They can change. You know, we see this time and time again, people change, whether it's the length of our hair or the way we are to others or the kind of music we like or whatever, you know, we, we all change. So that, that gives me hope. It's very inspiring. And it was inspiring to hear you in the Ted talk with your elements talking about how we conquer anger mm. with non-anger, badness with goodness, yep. meanness with generosity. And that is from Buddha. Yes. Yeah, a quote directly from Buddha. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's very inspiring, not only that you've 
reach these conclusions, but you have the communication skills to put it together into a book. And I know that we can go to your website, brianfalchuk.com, and see more about this. Yeah. And it's B-R-Y-A-N-F-A-L-C-H-U-K. Dot com and we can we can certainly find out all about your book. I think it's great that you've been able to put this together. Tell me about the mindfulness that's involved in taking this from the idea stage into the actual finished book yeah. stage. Well, it's such a huge project. And this one, I think more than my last book, really tested that. Because my last book came purely out of my head. I've been living it for years. I've been coaching people on it. I just had to codify it and write the stories out. And it really just flowed out of me. This one was different. I didn't just read Open Heart, Clear Mind. I I read a lot of books because I needed to. I'm not a Buddhist. I did not grow up with these ideas. I needed to get a lot smarter on them. And I read some other relationship books as well. So there was much more work involved. And my day job, my actual work was really full on at the time. So there were so many moments where it was too much. I was too disconnected from it. The size of the project was too great. I didn't even know, could I actually get through this? You know, there there was so much research to do. It was almost like, I don't even know if this is a book. I don't even know if there's, or, or if it's a book within me that I'm capable of putting together. So to not be mindful means to succumb to all of that. And there are absolutely moments where that did happen, where I let the whirlwind of everything swirling around me went out and I didn't put the energy into, I don't want to say I couldn't because ultimately I could, I just didn't. I did. I chose not to, whether it was a purposeful choice or not, mindless choice or not. I chose not to put the energy into moving the project along. And uh, you know, um, you know, I left the job that I was at at the time in October of last year of 2018. And that's when I said, okay, now I have some space. I'm going to purposefully move this book to completion. And, you know, it still took almost a year to get it totally done, but I did it. It needed me to really come back into the project full force. Mm -hmm. I don't think many books do well by running bits and pieces here and there. I certainly don't work that way. It's like every time I finally got the time to write, I'd have to reread everything I'd written before. And so like that one hour chunk I had allotted, I'm three quarters of the way through reading what I already wrote and I've done nothing new, maybe a bit of editing. So really dedicating good amounts of time to just focus on this. And so, you know, notifications off, devices turned off, better yet. I had a train ride from Boston to New Jersey there and back, you know, like two, seven, eight hour journeys, whatever it was, fantastic. (laughs) Mm Because the Wi-Fi was terrible and the cell reception was terrible and I didn't know anyone around me. And so I put on noise canceling headphones and I, that's when I completed the first cut of the manuscript from like 40% done to completely done because I was finally able to really focus in and, and complete the manuscript in a focused way. So yeah, it's, it's finding, finding the space or a finding, creating the space because it is on me to put the mindfulness into the project. And then it really writes itself at that point when you bring your full mind to it. Right. Right. Wow. Well, I applaud you. I think it's fantastic that you've done this. This is quite an accomplishment, not only one book, but two books that are very, very helpful to people. Now you're a coach. I am. Can you tell us a story about someone that you've coached and how you've transformed them from one place and transitioned them into something else? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting as the, uh, 
as the draft was, was getting finalized with my editor, one of the people I was coaching went through a, a bit of a trauma, if you will, at work where he had been led to believe he was about to get promoted and budgets being what they are, they had to put it off six months or whatever. And he was really flipping out and he had drafted a, a fairly nasty note to his boss about how unfair all of this was. And so very much stepping back with him, you know, he needed to air what was on his mind. And so I gave him that space, but then I tried to take him back into thinking, well, what is your boss trying to achieve? You know, did you think about the situation that he's in? He has a budget constraint and a star employee who he's anxious to promote. And now he's stuck between those two things. So thinking about what his happiness is. And, mm-hmm. I, and I literally, like, I got him to talk about that. Like, take yourself out for a moment. What do you think your boss wants? And, you know, his first few answers were a bit flippant and angry, which is understandable. Yes. But so then I can question it. Okay, do you think that when he got up this morning before meeting with the CFO to talk about budgets... He was like, how can I, you know, scam people and steal a little extra money for, for the, the profit or what, you know, whatever my, my bonus. Do you think that? No, I don't think he woke up thinking that. Okay. So do you think when he had that budget meeting that his intention was to promote you and that maybe he was also surprised? And so, you know, the more we went back and forth, he realized they actually have similar kinds of happiness for that situation. And his boss was actually probably feeling some version of the same thing he was feeling. Let down, surprised, stuck. And so that suddenly he's empathizing instead of accusing and feeling attacked. And so we moved him from this place of, you know, I have to teach them why what they're doing to me is wrong, which doesn't bode well for either your current employment or your future promotion. No. What if you can demonstrate to him just how mature and responsible and professional you are? Do you think the way you handle this might reinforce the promotion you deserve to get when they do have the budget? And I said, oh, I didn't think about it that way. So, yeah, because you've just proven to him that even when times are tough, you do what needs to be done and you put the company's needs first, which every employee ultimately needs to do if you want the organization to continue. And you're still mm-hmm. here where other people might be reacting poorly. Let them be the ones who don't have these common company goals and support of your manager who's probably hiding his own pain, having those in mind. And so he scrapped his email and he went and met with his boss in person the next day. And he called me that night. He's like, it was great. Like he definitely felt stuck and trapped, embarrassed, um, frustrated, you know, all the things that my client had felt. And he said, he's like, you know, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It's really been weighing on my mind. I've been worried about how you'd take it. I didn't know if you would stick it out. I'm sure you get lots of other job offers. So, you know, I was really nervous about you wanting to leave. He's like, this makes me feel so much better. And he's like, and I really did mean it. We are actually getting the budget in three months, whatever it is. And he's like, and you know, I'm going to fight for you and the way you've shown up right now, just like everything he and I talked about the night before really played out in that conversation. So, you know, it's not husband and wife. It's not boyfriend and girlfriend. It's not parent and child. It's, It's a professional setting. Is one a lot of us unfortunately find ourselves in, and it plays out no matter what. So you know, lots of other use cases with people I've coached, but that was one that was just so timely because I was putting the finishing touches on the book. So I was like, if I don't use this right now, I shouldn't be putting the book out. I really appreciate your story, and and like I said before, you have such a great way of communicating. As a child, were you a great communicator as well? 
great volume of communication, <laughs> not, <laughs> oh, not yeah. great ability to communicate. Yeah, I, I was uh, super, I was trying to explain to my son last night why I was in trouble in school a lot, or the teachers didn't like me. It's because I was I was disruptive. I talked a lot, but uh, that's not the same thing as talking quality a lot. <laughs> right. So yeah, I was a lot. And and knowing what I know now, a lot of that was a desire for attention and right. you know things going on at home, playing out at school, um, and kids don't really understand. I, w- I was very theatrical. I was in plays and yeah. stuff, so maybe that's part of the same story, but I wasn't necessarily the best communicator myself, especially writing. I was a terrible English student, which is oh, really? yeah, it's what makes it so funny that actually I'm I'm not a bad, I know I've had a lot of help from editors along the way. And I, I think I've yeah. learned from that. This book had far fewer edits than my last book. I was not a skilled orator, as it were back then. Yeah. Well, you know, I just keep thinking back to seeing you on the, the TEDx stage. You have such great poise and I don't hear any ums or ahs. You must've practiced it a lot. Did you, or are you, you just, it just came through from you. I, so I take a very particular stance on this that I don't believe in scripting. So you'll see a lot of people script, especially for TEDx's and TED Talks, they get nervous. I, what I do is I give the talk over and over and over again. Um, that one I actually didn't do as much as my do-a-day talk because I, I just didn't have the time. Um, but I firmly believe if you don't know what you're talking about such that you need to script everything you say, you probably don't want to be talking about it. Um, Maybe that's utopian, but I've found that to be the case with every talk I've ever given. And I've given lots of talks. I prefer to identify with my message. And that means I generally don't need to use filler words while I try to remember my line. Uh, I just I just used one. Sometimes they have a good effect. And sometimes <laughs> they humanize us a bit. So I'm not, yeah, true. I don't worry if I do use them. Um, but I, I generally know what it is I'm trying to convey. And I have what I believe is a strong connection to my message. So I don't, it's not hard for me to be on stage. I, I actually quite like it. And I like, especially with an audience to see the response real time. And on a TED stage, you can't really see the audience because of the lights, right. which is rough. But um, right. yeah, I mean, the first one, people were crying and that I, I almost started crying on stage actually. It's very, you know, I'm talking about my wife being near death and this is a difficult talk. It was very moving. It was it was great. And one of our our other friends was in the audience. Um yeah. so you know, I appreciated his views on it when I got off stage. But there's nothing to me better than knowing what I just shared resonated in such a way that maybe it helps someone with what they're struggling with. That's the reason I do all this. So um I think having that purpose makes it really easy to walk out on stage for me. And I know for other people, maybe that's not the case, but that's where I focus is I know my message and I'm hoping to resonate with people and, and help them. And so it makes it worth it. I don't really get nervous or anything in that respect. Well, that's great. Last time we touched on this, I always ask a question about bullying related to mm. bullying. And I'm wondering if you have a different story this time, maybe something connected to being an author or something connected to the work you do now. It's interesting being self-published, you have to work really hard to spread your message. You don't have marketing machine behind you. And that is a lot of work. And I would say there's a bully who lives within my head, Mm. who is the most powerful bully I've ever come up against. But we have a mutual friend, Adam Shively. Adam and I were talking about this just in a you know friendly phone call, not not on a podcast for a change. This notion that you put your heart into something 
and you have a message, maybe it's just a blog post, maybe it's just a, a regular old post or something big like a book you've written. You put right. your heart and your soul into it. You put it out there and you are so connected with that. And so much of you has gone into that and it falls flat and no one responds to it. No one reacts. And then the question is, what is that bully in your head saying about whether anyone cares or whether your message matters? And if you're as focused on helping people to change their lives, like I am, like Adam is, like I know you are. And if no one seems to care, then what was it all for? And are you directing your energies in the right way? Or is your message good enough? I mean, these are all the tapes that play in our head for those who were alive when tapes were a thing. Um, you know, it's, it, it is, that is probably the hardest part of all of this. And leading up to the book launch, you know, with the first one, it was like, I went through these moments where I'm like, this is going to sell thousands. And it's not about the sales. It's about the people who read it, like that many sure. lives that get it. And then there's another moment that it's like, my mother's going to be the only one who, who buys this. And luckily, <laughs> yes. she bought 30 copies. So I'm like, yeah, okay, that's not too bad. Well, okay, that's a yeah. plus. <laughs> Let's hope she comes through on this one too. But you know, what if? Like, what if that's all it does? And I remember sitting on a plane as I'm writing and I went through these highs and lows within seconds of each other. Like, what if I end up, mm. you know, on the couch with Oprah in the woods on Super Soul Sunday? What if there's no one, like not even, you know, not even my mom. She's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I didn't buy it. That's a tough place to be. So then you hit launch day and you don't know what's going to happen. And there's that nervousness. So luckily when do a day launch, I was in California for work. And so I was asleep for the first couple of hours before, or actually I was at the gym when my like email blast went out about it. So by the time mm -hmm. I checked the numbers, it had already been a bestseller. And so it's like, phew, like the rest of the day is saved. Yeah. With this one, I ran the pre-orders much better. I didn't really do pre-orders with Duoday and understand what I was doing enough. And I've learned. Yeah. So I know going into launch day, and as we're recording, this is the day before the book goes live, 50.75.100 has already outsold Duoday's launch by, wow. as of right now, three books. It was one book when I went to bed last night, but that's okay. What, but, but you know what, leading up to it, like three weeks ago, I was like, what if this one isn't a bestseller? And then I've had two books and one of them isn't like, how, and it's my newer one isn't. So what does that mean? And you, again, that bully is there kind of talking mm -hmm. you down, like, cause you're a failure. Cause what you're saying isn't real. You know, all the, the things. And because I share so much of myself and my own story and my work, I, it hurts. It, you know, it has the potential to be that much more hurtful, but you come right back to the message the book is about. Well, why is it hurting me? What is it I'm trying to get to? And that it is actually me. There's no inanimate it hurting me. These are, exactly. Yeah. So right. back to mindfulness, right? These are the things that we yeah, stay present exactly. on. It's an interesting mental journey for sure. What are some ways you've grown in mindfulness in the last few months? So I... Uh, I have to be careful that I don't sound like I'm trying to sell my book when I say it, but I catch myself saying do a day a lot and a lot more mm -hmm. literally just in the past three months. I feel like I'm a little bit more attuned to people's happiness and I'm more attuned to when they may be working against it themselves. With do a day, mm -hmm. I definitely saw when people were spiraling and not being mindful, but now it's like I have a different anchor for it around happiness. So I feel like I've been more keyed into those moments for myself as well. And just, I mean, cause I've had plenty myself. And so to be able to call that out and saying do a day for me is a little bit of like, you know, pinch yourself and bring yourself back to the present moment. It's like, mm -hmm. hang on, none of that's happening. That's all, you know, yes, that could be very scary and none of it's happening right now. So let's return to what we need to do in this moment 
And maybe that moment will never come as a result. So I do feel like connecting to those Buddhist ideas and you know all the work I did to put 5075-100 out has helped me to bring that whole picture together. Well, I think that is just wonderful. It's just, it's fantastic seeing your growth as you move through this time in your life and you're moving forward all the time, but you're putting a lot of effort into it. That's obvious. Yeah. Oh, thank so you. Congratulations. And you, you've seen behind the scenes a lot. So I appreciate you saying that because you would know. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your accomplishments. And yes, I encourage all my listeners to get the 5075-100 solution because it is all about your message and your message is an impactful message that makes a difference. So go to brianfalchuk.com, B-R-Y-A-N-F-A-L-C-H-U-K.com. And you can get the book there and learn a lot more about Brian. So, Brian, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bruce. It's great to reconnect. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. You take care. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Yeah, bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, this sleep naturally guided meditation that I have for you just for Mindful Tribe members. It's to help you receive the deep, easy sleep that you deserve. Sleep naturally and you'll be able to fall asleep easily, get more work done tomorrow and feel better about it. Rest comfortably without effort. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash sleep for your free download. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.